All right. Now, this is an amazing chapter that we're getting into here. And there's a lot in it. And there's a lot that's been debated for centuries as to the meaning of it. Uh, I I assure you we will not be debating here this morning. (laughs) We will be reading and we will be talking and uh, we'll see what the Lord has for us. Amen? Okay. Um, uh, let's, let's pray first. Lord, uh, we, we thank you, God. We, we ask you, Lord. We ask you to, to, to bless us here with your word, God, to, to, to let it lie, Lord, that we would absorb it, Lord, that it would become part of us, that we would eat the word, Lord, as you've said in your scripture. We would ingest all that you are, all that you have to offer us, all that you give to us, God, so freely. We didn't have to work for it, God, and we thank you for that. I pray that this word lie. I pray that your word do its work, not returning void, but that it change us in Jesus' name. Lord, help me with the um, strength in Jesus Christ to communicate this word. May my speech here today, this morning, be seasoned with salt, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I want to go ahead and and, and read these uh, few verses uh, to you here today, and and then we're going to focus on the first few as as a prelude, as a setup for what we're going to be going through in the next couple of weeks. So in Matthew 24, starting in verse 1, this is what we read. Let me see here. Alrighty. Now Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. I want to stop there for today. So you see, we have a a little bit to discuss. We are at a point in the scripture 
where God is showing us and telling us, revealing to us what will happen before the end comes, what will happen as He ushers in the beginning of the end. Amen? We see that, right? That all these things that happen are but the beginning of the birth pains. Not that they are the end, but the beginning, the signs of the beginning, the way that it starts. We want to know the future, don't we? Man wants to know the future. Man wants to know the future. It's not new, not not to anyone across the world. People make fortunes and likewise lose fortunes as they navigate futures in the stock market and their finances. People want to know the future and at the same time don't even understand the present, however. We have such a troubling time and such a hard time with what's going on now. We don't even understand what's going on now. We don't even understand in our own individual lives at times, many times throughout the course of our life, what's going on now in our own individual lives and with our own perspective we cannot see what's actually going on, yet we want to know the future. We concentrate our time and our efforts and we pour into the future. What's going to happen? Let's prepare for the future. All while neglecting what's going on now in the present time in our own life and in our own family. It's easier to look ahead when what's going on right in front of you is troubling, isn't it? It's easier to look away when you are staring trouble in the mirror. When you are staring the world in the mirror, when you are looking at the state of the world, it's easier to want to look away from it, isn't it? Although we, when we see a car wreck on the side of the road, what does everybody do? We, we slow down, we stare at it. What happened? How, how many cars? Oh my gosh. Let's, let's slow down. Let's cause a wreck trying to look at the wreck. You know, that's what we do. But in our own lives, do we slow down to look when we see trouble? No, we look away. We try not to deal with it. Because the human heart has trouble with suffering. The human heart has trouble with trouble. The human heart has trouble with pain. We don't want to remember the things that have happened because they're so painful in our lives. So much so that we don't even allow the past sometimes to help us navigate what's going on right now in the, in the present. Regardless of what's going to happen in the future, what's happening now? You see... Um, People in and outside the church have all sorts of thoughts and beliefs about the end times, yet they don't understand grace. They don't understand forgiveness. They don't understand taming the tongue. They don't understand mercy or even how to love as Jesus loves, yet they have a preoccupation with what has not yet taken place. My plea to you here today is to get you to look into this text and see that As Jesus is warning us about things that will happen, he's warning us so that we take care of the present, not so that we invest everything we have in the future. Amen? He's helping us so that we can see now what's going on now and know that we have a hope in eternity regardless of the trouble and the suffering of the time, that we have a hope in eternity that supersedes anything that will happen in this world. He's helping us with our present while telling us about the future. And what will happen? We would do well to focus on things here and now while also having an expectation about what's yet to come. 
Because we can both be hopeful about tomorrow while taking care of our relationship with God and our faithful obedience today. We can do both. Hope and expect and be expecting about the future. Hope in the future. Have joy about what, what's going to happen because Jesus has promised it and it's glorious. Hey, tell me something. That the future of the church, is it not a glorious future? It is a glorious future. And the thing that people are preoccupied with is the tribulation of the future. Yes, I understand it's glorious. I understand when we go to heaven, it's going to be awesome. I understand when we go to be with Jesus, it's going to be great. But the trouble that he says we're going to experience, that's what I really want to focus on. How much is it going to hurt? Anybody afraid of getting shots at the doctor? Anybody afraid of needles? Anybody afraid of going under the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody afraid of going under the knife? You know, surgery make you anxious? You know? Anybody not go to the doctor because of what they're going to tell you? You afraid? Ah, I, don't, I don't need to go to the doctor. I know what they're going to say. You don't want to hear the truth so you don't go? That happens. But there is a preoccupation with future things. There is a thought. There's a thought in the world that if we can know or understand the future, then we can be better equipped for the present. And some believe perhaps we can even understand why some of the things of the past have occurred or why they happen now in our present if we can just know the future. Mediums, fortune tellers, seers, prognosticators, sorcerers have been sought out since the beginning so that men and women could better understand what would happen in the future. There was like a tarot card reader placed here in Aranza's past for a while, right? I'm sure if you call the lady up, she'll read your cards right now for you. Over the phone maybe even. You know, because of social distancing and whatnot. In the Old Testament, we read the account of the Lord when his man Joseph was given a dream to interpret for Pharaoh. You all remember that? We went through that in here. No doubt you've read it on your own. And that dream dealt with the future, didn't it? And Pharaoh needed to know, what does this dream mean? What does it mean? He needed to know, and Joseph interpreted it for him. And the future was so important to Pharaoh that he put a man that he didn't even know, a man who was locked up in the center of the prison, basically under the prison, a man he didn't even know, a man who was not from his own people, a man who didn't believe or think like him, a man who had a belief in a foreign God that Pharaoh didn't even know. He put that man, because of this man's interpretation of the dream that he had from God and his ability to see what would happen in the future because God gave it to him, he put this man in charge of his entire kingdom. That's how much the future matters to people. A man he didn't even know he puts in charge because, well, this guy knows something about the future. He can protect us, and his God will protect us. The future, if we can just know it, if we can just find someone who understands it, can, can, we can, it can help us out so much here in the present. This is the thought. And though Jesus tells us of things that will take place in the future, and though the Bible is filled with prophecy about future things, we never get the information 
that so many so desperately want. And what's that information, church? When? But when is it going to happen? But when is it going to happen, Lord? When? Give me the day, Lord. Give me the hour, Lord. What does Jesus tell us about that? We cannot know the day or the hour. Only the Father has that information. And I want to appeal to you as well, if we don't get it from God in the text, the day or the hour, if we don't get it from God in the text of the Scripture, then we don't need it. I want want to encourage you today, if you don't see it in the Scripture, you don't need it. If the information cannot be gleaned from the words of the text, you don't need it. If God didn't say it, you don't need it. If God didn't give it, you don't need it. And this is not just about the text of the scripture, but if God does not give you something in your life that you've prayed for, you don't need it. Isn't that the truth of life? Isn't that the truth about the will and the purpose of God is that God gives us what we need? Doesn't he also give us some things we want sometimes? We don't need to know when, we just need to know it will happen. And we should get prepared for it now, here in the present. Knowing what will take place, we should be ready now. If there's anything Jesus is trying to do with this text, if there's anything he's trying to do with telling us what will take place in the future, he's he's appealing to us to be ready now. To be ready. Are you ready, church? Are you ready? Are you ready? Do you read? Do you study? Do you worship? Do you glorify God? Are you ready? Because this is what it takes. At the time of the writing of this scripture, the Jewish people are a people who have been ruled for centuries by other kingdoms. Centuries. Centuries. They've been ruled for centuries by other kingdoms. The Bible calls this the time of the Gentiles in Luke chapter 21. The time of, the, of Gentile rule over the nation of Israel. And they want out of it, the people. They want out of it. They don't want to be ruled under the thumb of the Roman Empire, under the feet, so to speak, of the Roman government. They don't want to be under it. They want out of it. They are oppressed. They want out of it. They wanted the future kingdom now, then, so that they could live free and worship their God where they stood the, God, the, the land that God had given to them and to their forefathers, they wanted to be in that land so that they would worship God in that land. They wanted to build their tents. They wanted to celebrate their feasts and festivals. They wanted to worship God. And they didn't want to be, uh, have to do it under this oppressive rule. But they were under the oppressive rule of other nations for so many years. But I want you to know that it is a direct result of their unbelief, their idol worship, their pride, and their hypocrisy. That's why they were ruled by other nations. It was a punishment from God. Amen? And they wanted out of it. These are the times of the Gentiles and the Jewish people wanted out. And in essence, you could say that they wanted out of the punishment of God for their own sin. That's not a foreign idea, is it? We all want out. We n- n- don't, none of us want to be punished. But I hope that as Christian believers we can see that the punishment of God is righteous and it's just and it's needed. They were so concerned with denouncing what their fathers had done 
uh, we read this, in persecuting the prophets that God sent to them with his message. Jesus tells us that in the previous chapters. But by so doing, they admit that their leadership had failed for many years to lead them into true worship of God. They admit that their leadership was, had gone astray. They were like, no, no, we're good. We, we got it all together. We're we, we doing what's right. They didn't do what's right, though. We, we, we got it, though. We got it. It's like just about every, other, every contractor I've ever met in my life. No one does the job good enough. I talked to Shane about this because he's a contractor. When anybody comes in and looks at the job that a previous contractor does, they look, no, mm-mm, nope. They messed you up up here. I can fix it, though. They messed you up. What did you pay for this? Uh uh-uh, no, 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 but I double charged you, you know, but I double charged you, I can fix it though, I can fix it, then the next contractor comes in because something didn't go right, ooh, what happened here, who did this, what did they they charge you, ooh, Mm -mm. no, 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 I can fix it though, I can do it right, this is what, this is the attitude of many, and this was the attitude of the Jewish people, the Pharisees. They're like, oh, our forefathers, oh, yes, we, we wouldn't have persecuted the prophets. We realized they did it, but we wouldn't have done that. Yet they did it to John the Baptist. Yet they did it to every single person who was a follower of Jesus Christ. And yet they did it to Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh. Because for them to denounce Saying something's wrong, saying it's wrong, that's not enough. It's not enough. Jesus is letting them know that. He's like, oh, I see that you say that your forefathers, you know, they, they wouldn't have persecuted the prophets. They, they, they wouldn't have done this. They wouldn't have done that. I see that you're saying that. But that's not the way you're living. Because you're doing the same things they did. you got the same thoughts in your heart, the same trouble, the same problems in your life that they did. you got the same sinful existence, the same sinful nature that they did. They didn't go to God to heal it. They didn't go to God to fix it. You are not going to God to heal it, to fix it. You're continuing in the same vein. You're doing the same thing over and over and over and over, and you're expecting a different result. And we cannot do this in life, can we, church? Because for them to denounce it wasn't enough. They needed to change the way they were living Jesus said that they didn't do this. It's it's not enough to want something different. It's better to want it and then to act on it. Put it into action to pray for it and to live for it. Jesus actually says this about it in Matthew 15, 7 through 9. Listen to this. This is bold here. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, it's not enough to say nice things. It's not enough to say something's wrong when everybody can see it's wrong. It's better to act on it, to live it out, and to be obedient to God through faith 
Because we cannot expect different results if we go on and do the same things over and over again. This is what the Pharisees were doing. They were living in the same life, in the same lie, in the same deception that their forefathers had lived in while they persecuted the prophets. How many times have you said, God, I don't want to live like this anymore, and then gone on and done the exact same thing over and over and over and over again? Anybody guilty of that one? I am. God, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to struggle through this anymore. I don't want to, I don't want, and then, you know, you, you go on and you do the same thing and, and then same thing happens as a result. And let me tell you something. If you want change to happen, you got to change in order to see it happen. If you want change to take place, you got to change in order for that change to take place. Amen. As the Jews awaited the Messiah, remember they wanted serious and effective change. They wanted a Messiah to come in and overthrow the governments of the world and install his kingdom on the earth. As prophesied in Isaiah chapter 11, among other places, they longed for the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the branch from his roots that would bear fruit. They awaited their Messiah. They awaited him. They long awaited their king to come in glory to restore and reform the earth into his kingdom. They awaited his righteous judgment on their enemies. They wanted to be delivered from their oppressive rule. They wanted freedom. They wanted to be ruled by a righteous king, by their king. They wanted to be ruled by a king who would lead them to peace, where the wolf and the lamb would graze together. You remember this scripture? Let's read it together. Now, Isaiah 11 has some of these same words, but let's go to Isaiah 65 and 21 through 25. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. You realize how significant that is where he says, they shall build houses and inhabit them. In other words, they're going to live in what they've built. Nobody's going to come in and take it from them and then plunder them and destroy their homes or destroy them and live in their homes. That's a big, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. Ooh, listen to that one. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear, says the Lord, right? The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Why is that significant? Well, because the lamb is a prey animal and the wolf is the predatory animal and the wolf is going to seek out the lamb for food, isn't he? Here in this existence. But there's going to be one, a kingdom, where they graze together. Isn't that incredible? Where they're not going to be seeking to kill and destroy and just to eat to fill their bellies, but they're going to graze together. Which also makes you think, oh, so the wolf's going to eat the same thing the lamb eats then, so they're not going to eat meat anymore. Hmm. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Listen to that. The lion. That's a big beast having to fill up on straw. All right. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. 
They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. They shall not hurt or destroy in all, in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is some incredible stuff. Because this is the future kingdom that they longed for. This is what they wanted. This is what they wanted to experience. This is why they were awaiting their Messiah. They wanted this. When is this going to happen? When is, when is this going to happen, God? Is what they cry out. And so as Jesus stood there in their midst, a miracle worker, a healer, one who raised the dead in Lazarus and called out the false teaching and hypocrisy of the Jews, the disciples, and others wondered why this kingdom had not yet been installed on the earth. If he was the Messiah, if he was doing all these things and they were happening really from the power of God, then why hadn't these things in this kingdom yet been fulfilled? This was their question. They were wondering. It seems there was more to the story of the future kingdom that they had only dreamed of and hoped for in their oppression. It seems though, as though it was not just as simple as him coming to the earth and ushering in and installing his kingdom and doing away with everything currently going on. No, there would be much more that had to take place first. And they wanted to know all the details. In fact, there are those even now still studying this so they can better understand the day and the hour when Christ will return for his own. And there was a, an eagerness, though as, it, as, as with anything else in the world, there was also a, a callousness that had come upon the people of Israel. As their wait had been long, you could say that they had given up become disillusioned with it to a degree, so much so that, in fact, uh, that, that once he did come, they didn't even recognize him. You ever wait so long for something, you just kind of forget about what you're waiting for? Your children ever ask you for something, and you say, maybe next time, maybe sometime down the road, and hope they're going to forget about it? Right? They didn't recognize him because their minds had envisioned something different than what the Lord had destined for them. Because the Lord's thoughts... See, man's thoughts are not like the Lord's thoughts. Man's ways are not like the Lord's ways. They're different, aren't they? His thoughts and his ways are higher than ours, aren't they? We expect certain things of God for him to fulfill promises, for him to fulfill prayers, requests that we've made in a certain way. And all the while, throughout the course of our life, he shows us over and over again, doesn't he? My ways are higher than your ways. We expect God to fulfill a promise in a certain way and he fulfills it in another way. And then we don't even recognize the fulfillment because we're looking for something else. They didn't recognize Jesus because they were looking for someone else. They were looking for someone who had not come. In fact, they were looking for someone who would never come. They're waiting for someone who would never come. Because they're not waiting for Jesus. They're waiting for someone else. And when Jesus comes, the actual fulfillment of the prophecy, the actual fulfillment of the scripture, they didn't recognize him because they weren't waiting for him. They were waiting for somebody that was going to suit their desires. Not somebody, not God himself, who was going to enact the purposes and destiny of God on the earth. And in the life to come. And they didn't recognize him also 
We can't ignore the scripture that says because their hearts had been hardened. Their hearts had been hardened by God. They would have read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Micah, Daniel, and all that the Lord had written through his prophets about the Savior who would come into the world and rescue the people of God. See, as Christ unravels his mysteries and lays them onto the minds and hearts of the people, he makes a bold declaration to them. It starts in the previous chapter in Matthew 23, 38. Listen to this. He says, See, your house is left to you desolate. So that starts what he's talking about now. See, your house is left to you desolate. Now, as, we've, as we begin here in 24, chapter 24, verse 1, we read, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. He left it. He departed it. He says, your house is going to be left to you desolate, and he leaves. Do you see what that implies there? The implication there. The reason it will be left desolate is because Christ is not there. Because Jesus leaves it. He leaves that house. The reason there's nothing there, the reason it's in calamity, the reason it's left desolate, the reason it's a dry place, the reason it's a wilderness of a faith, the Jewish faith is. It's a wandering in the wilderness. The reason is because Christ is not there. Where Christ is not, there is emptiness. Where Christ is not, there is darkness. Where Christ is not, there is blindness. And it will be left this way, in, in this way, for a time, void of eternal security, because it is without Him. He is the one who gives value. He is the one who gives meaning. And He is the one who gives security. Without, without Him, none of these are enjoyed. Without Christ, we are nothing but bones, skin, blood, and sin. We are but dust without the breath of life and the blood of the Son. And we need to know that. Interestingly, Matthew Henry points out in his commentary about this chapter that the veil was torn in the temple as Christ died on the cross. He says, quote, Three days after this, the veil of the temple was rent. When Christ left it, all became common and unclean. I want to read that again. Three days after this, the veil of the temple was rent. When Christ left it, all became common and unclean. The temple, everything. It's an interesting thought because as we know, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. We know that, right? When did that, excuse me, when did that, when did that veil get torn, y'all? Anybody know? Crucifixion, huh? As Christ died on the cross, the veil was torn from top to bottom. And what did the veil separate? The veil was in the temple, and behind the veil was the Holy of Holies. That was the special place in the temple that only one person could enter, the high priest, and he could only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people and for his own sin. That's the only time he could go in there. And in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, behind that veil, behind that curtain, what was there? Well, the, the Ark of the Covenant was there, also called the Covenant Box. And over the, on top of the Covenant Box were, was the cherubim with their wings like this. And on top of the wings was called the Mercy Seat. 
That was called the mercy seat. And who hovered over the mercy seat but the presence of God himself in a glory cloud called the Shekinah glory cloud. And this was what was so special about the Holy of Holies and why people could not enter but the high priest because the presence of God was there in the clouds. Isn't that amazing? Now when Jesus Christ dies on the cross, there is no separation then, there is no veil, there is no curtain between God and those who believe in God. Instead, there is absolute communion and fellowship and unity in Jesus Christ because we now have the power of the Holy Spirit within us to unite us with God forever. So the veil has been torn and there is no separation between God and man. We don't have to go through a high priest in order to get to God. Instead, what do we do, Christian? We pray We talk to God and we have communion with Him. We boldly approach the throne of grace because of Jesus and because our faith has made that real. And how has our faith made that real? But by the grace of God Himself to live out and fulfill and perform every single thing that needed to be fulfilled so that we could be one with God in Jesus Christ. And so Matthew Henry, what he's saying, he said, so, so as, as soon as that veil was torn, everything was common and unclean. There was nothing so sacred on the earth anymore. Not in the temple, not in a building, not with something made by hands. Instead, now there's a new temple, isn't there? And it's not a building. And I'm sorry, it's not a First Baptist Church of Aransas cla- uh, Pass uh, church building. That's not the holy place on earth. We want to be holy in this place. We want to be holy individual people in this place. Why? Because the new temple of the church, the new temple of God is the individual believer. It is us. And together we are the temple, the living temple of Jesus Christ. With the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, He dwells in us. God is with us because of Jesus. The veil has been torn and now God is with you. His presence isn't hovering over a glory or over over a mercy seat anymore in a cloud. Instead, He's with you to lead you, to guide you, and to to direct you, and to, 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 to lay out the path before you so that you could see how and where you're supposed to walk in life. This is an amazing truth. I want to read 1 Corinthians 6 to you. Before that, I'm going to say this. There are many references to church buildings and likening them to the temple in in America and in the world, but these comparisons all fall short, and I have to say this. They all fall short because of the main reason for the temple and who was hovering there in a glory cloud before the high priest. Okay? We don't offer sacrifices in houses of worship or in church buildings, do we? Is there any place, like, is there a place back there where we got, I mean, it's all, you know... We got an altar, knives, blood. Ain't no place. You know what I'm saying? The Holy of Holies, that's not Nikki's office, not my office, Carol's office. Ain't the gym, Sunday school rooms, this place, this ain't the temple. You are the temple, Christian. You are the temple. You are the temple. This is why it's so important for us believers to read the Word of God and be changed by it because God is making us into or he's he's making us holy he's sanctifying us he's building us up in the truth he's changing us from one degree of glory to another 
You see, the church house is not the temple. In fact, the believer is the new temple. And this is what I want to read, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Mm. Whom you have from God. You are not your own. Isn't that some news? You are not your own? What? But I thought I was. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Why am I not my own? Why don't I belong to my mom and dad? Why don't I belong to my wife? Why don't I belong to my children? Well, because I was bought with a price. And because I belong to God. And I'd rather belong to God than belong to any human being on this planet. I'd rather be with God than be with anyone. As much as it hurts me in my flesh to say that because I love my wife and I love my sons. But I would rather be with Christ than with any of them. I love my parents and my brothers. And I would rather be with God than with them. And if we can't say this and if we can't grasp it, then we have not been changed by the glory of God. It's an interesting thought here. Paul writes that you are not your own. Likewise, the temple was not ours. The temple was God's. Amen? The temple was God's. No doubt Paul's beckoning back. He's hearkening back to when Jesus walks into the temple, turns over the tables of the money changers, and he says, my father's house is a house of prayer, and you have made it into a den of thieves. You remember this? He says, my father's house, my father's house, God's house. In the same way, your body, that's God's house. That's the temple. It did not belong to the people. It belonged to God. They didn't have ownership over it. God did. Any place God dwells belongs to him. And you have been bought, bought with a price and you are not your own. Anybody know what that price was? That price was the blood of the Son, Jesus Christ. So that by His grace, you could be saved through faith. Amazing. And as enamored with the temple that the disciples or the people may have been, they, they should have been all the more enamored by the Lord who walked in their midst, who gave the dimensions of the temple, its walls, its contents, and its geometry. You realize that the God who designed the temple was walking in their midst, and the disciples are saying, Man, Lord, look at all that, look at that temple. It's amazing. And the one who designed it is in their midst. And they aren't as enamored in that moment with Christ as they are with the temple. I want to ask you something, Christian. Do you get more enamored with God's things than you do with God? Is heaven more appealing to you because you will be free from pain than it is appealing to you because you will be with God? Is heaven more beautiful to you because you will see your parents or somebody in your family who's passed away? Is it more beautiful to you? Do you hope in heaven more because you'll get to see that or because you'll get to be with God? This is something that we've got to ask ourselves. 
And this is something that we need to know the truth of. Because if it's more beautiful to us because of the people who are going to be there or the things that are going to be there or the attitude of that place than it is because of God, then we need to have a heart change. And we need to be enamored with God. But the disciples, like us, they have a problem. They have trouble with sin, so much so that they couldn't recognize him. And the Pharisees could not recognize him. John 1, 9 through 13, listen to this. This is beautiful, my goodness. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. I can't even... I can't even breathe because of that scripture. Like, I feel like I can't move because of that verse. I want you to listen to it again. The true light... You know what this means? It means we don't have any clue what light is in our flesh. It means we have trouble seeing what's real. It means we get disillusioned with the world and everything going on in the world so that we can't see clearly. The true light, not the light that you've conjured up in your mind, not the light that we see overhead, not the, the light that we see even in the, in the sky with the sun and then the moon at night reflecting the, the, the reflect, reflecting the brightness of the sun. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him who believed in his name... He gave the right to become children of God. To become children of God. There's an idea in the world that everybody, we're all children of God, and that's not true. Everybody is made in the image of God. Absolutely true. Imago Dei, image of God. We all are image bearers of God, every single one of us. But the only people who have the privilege of saying that they're children of God have to become children of God. And we have to become children of God by the adoption of God. And that only comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We are adopted into the family of God. He takes us from where we are and He brings us to Himself. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right... Didn't have the right before, but once they received him, once they believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There is a rebirth that needs to take place. Amen? We got to be born again, right? But man is enamored with great big buildings. The bigger, the better. The world is enamored, enamored with great big crowds. The more, the better. And truth be told, there are many in the kingdom of God who profess to be Christians who take better care of the building than they do their own relationship with God. They'd rather get to the building, fix up the building, than get to God and ask Him to help them to fix their own sinfulness before a holy God. Rather fix the building than fix my own relationship with God. 
people in the church the world over take more personally how their building looks than how their life with God looks. This is a mistake and I don't ever want us to fall into that trap. Let's take care of our own lives and our relationships with God first and let us be a light and a beacon of love and a beacon of hope and a beacon of faithfulness to this community first and foremost. Amen? You see, they had seldom seen the temple, perhaps, these disciples. They weren't from there. And the glory of it and its size and its sheer magnitude was before them. Yet Jesus took this time to throw it down and trample it underfoot before their hearts because of what it had become. It had become an idol. Remember, Jesus doesn't care for appearances. He cares for the motives of the heart. As glorious as it looked, in all of its splendor, in all of its beauty, and as glorious as it had been intended to be, this is not what it was in reality now. Remember, he says that they had turned it into a den of thieves. And as they gloried over its appearance before him, they should have been glorying in the one who made it, who stood before them. Instead of glorying about the temple, how about glorying about Jesus? Instead of saying, oh, look at this, Lord, look at all the the buildings of the temple, they should have said, oh, look at you, Lord, and how glorious and magnificent are you. But they had trouble and they should have been thinking of the warning given back in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. And at this house which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. You see, his lament affected them. His lament, his disdain for the sinful treatment of his father in the temple drove him to make these statements and then to carry out action against it and action against the people. This was judgment and it was coming. Matthew 24 and verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Church, there will no doubt be many a time in our lives where we could point to the things that we've done or that we've taken part in that we think could gain favor with God. And at these times, we need to heed the warning of God not to look to ourselves or the places where we go for justifying works. We need to look to Jesus We need to look to his justifying work of sacrifice on the cross for sin. And then we need to believe in him. And what Jesus is referring to in in short would be the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. During the first Jewish Roman war, it was ruined. 
So I, I don't know that you realize this, but that actually took place. It was destroyed as he said it would be. It was sacked. It was ruined. It was set on fire and burned in 70. But God was no longer in that temple. He was now on his throne in heaven and in the hearts of the church in the person of the Holy Spirit. God shook the world with this statement and then with its fulfillment. He is shaking the world now with his word. He is shaking the world with his fulfillment of prophecy, his love, and his compassion for his own. He is shaking the world with it. And with his gospel of salvation by grace through faith, the world is shaking and it is quaking and it is at its knees. Is God continuing to shake the church now? Any of y'all shaking? Any of y'all being stirred? There is a global pandemic right now. Anybody know about that? Anybody aware? As I look at y'all, but y'all wearing masks. Right. Why? Because of this pandemic. The world is shaking right now and it is at its knees. Anybody who know who is allowing this to take place? He's letting the church know who the church is. The ones who still want God, the ones who still look to God, the ones who run to God, the ones who are changed and invest in the Word of God. God is revealing the church to the world and He is revealing the church to the church. There was a study done, and I, and I, and I, I talked about this a couple months ago, that not even 50% of churchgoers are watching their own local church's live stream. Anybody troubled by that? I'm, I'm troubled by it. It tells me the church ain't really the church. Those who profess to be the church ain't really the church. It tells me they're preoccupied. They got other things to do. It tells me they really don't care about the word of God. It tells me that they, they really don't care about the word being preached or read, about, about fellowshipping with other saints, even if it's online. As easy as that is, you take out every obstacle, you make it as easy as possible where people can watch in their homes and they ain't doing it. The church is being revealed around the world, y'all. Glory be to God, you're a part of it. We are a part of it together, aren't we? We are a part of it together. We love God. And we need Him. The world is shaking. But this has always been the case. It looks different now as we live in these times, but it has always been the same. God is calling his own out of the world to make themselves known to the world as they have already been known to him and by him. Remember, God knows your name. Remember in the scriptures, he, uh, he talks to Moses. He says, I know you by name. Did you know that he doesn't only know Moses by name? That he also knows you by name? He knows your name. 
He knows your name. No doubt growing up through your life, you idolized somebody. You, you, you thought somebody was awesome. You thought somebody was one of your heroes in life. I have heroes, my own pastoral heroes, theologians, people who think like and write things that I, I can't even... Like how, how, do they even, how, how do they have the ability to write like that or think like that? How did they put that together? Some of these words that some of these theologians that I study use, I'm just like, oh my gosh, seasoned with salt, all of it. Light shining through, all of it. I don't, I don't know how that's possible, but by God, in the strength of God, in the wisdom of God, because they pour their lives out for God. But as we idolize and, 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 and hold up people in our own lives, maybe, we need to hold up God above all, don't we? He's calling us out of the world. He's calling us out of the world. And he knows us by name. Because I assure you, those people, I love to read Charles Spurgeon, Matthew Henry, John MacArthur, Leonard Ravenhill. I love to listen to these people. John Piper. Francis Chan, I love to listen to them. They don't know my name. God knows my name, though. How beautiful is that? He knows your name, church. He knows your name. And he's calling you to join him in eternity. God is calling his own out of the world. He's calling for boldness as his own boldness rings true in every believer's heart. Today, he's calling you to join him. He's calling you to join him in the work in the kingdom here today. Will you join him in the kingdom? Don't get enamored by the world, church. Get enamored and captivated by God who made the world. Don't get captivated, captivated by the gold of the temple as the Pharisees were. They swear by the gold of the temple instead of swearing by the temple that the gold is made for. Right? We read that. Don't get enamored by the gold of the world, the things of the world. Get enamored by God. Get enamored by God who made all precious metals and stones and gems and this earth that we stand on who gave us the breath of life, breathed it into our nostrils, gave us the indwelling Holy Spirit as we believed in the Son, in Jesus. Be enamored with God. Don't get captivated by the world. Be captivated and caught up in Christ. You see, if Jesus is doing something here in this text, it is this. He's calling them to treasure God above the world. That's number one. He's calling them to treasure God above the world. Number two, He's calling them to place their hope in God and not in the things of the world. Number three, he's calling them to place their hope in God and not in the things of the world. I'm sorry, that was number two. He's calling them to realize that even the most beautiful of the world, whether buildings or even people, will fade along with it if they are not one of his own. And lastly, he's calling them to realize that without him... Everything is left desolate. He's calling them to realize that there is nothing of value aside from Christ 
and His glorious will. So let's take stock of these realizations and let's place our trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for loving us and for preparing this for us, God. We thank You for, Lord, for living this life that You lived on this earth in the person of Jesus Christ for us, that we would know You, God. Lord, I ask You to forgive us where we fail You, Lord. Lord, Forgive us where we've gone wrong. Help us to see the truth, God. To see the true light which was coming into the world, which has come, and who will come back. Lord, help us to see the truth, to know what's right. Lord, help us to know what's right and what's wrong. In our own lives, Lord, help us with that individually. Help us to know what's right, to believe the truth. God, help us to be separate from the world, to live out our lives in holiness, set apart for you and your glory and your grace and your love. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to realize that without you, Lord, everything is left desolate and laid waste. But God, thank you for the hope that we are not without you in this world. We have you, God. Lord, reveal yourself to your people in Jesus' name. Amen.